Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider Podcast on the SEC's new SPAC rules adopted this week. To help unpack the 581 pages of the new rules, SPAC Insider founder Christy Marvin spoke with a panel of SPAC legal experts in a live webinar Thursday. This is the audio version of that conversation and Q&A, but the webinar can also be viewed in video form on SPAC Insider's website. The panel discusses which measures are likely and unlikely to provoke change in approach by SPACs moving forward. What questions still remain, and how will this affect the state of the SPAC market in 2024 and beyond? Take a listen. Good afternoon, and thanks everyone for joining today's webinar, where we're going to be discussing the newly released SPAC rule. My name is Christy Marvin, and I'm the founder of SPAC Insider, and joining me today are a panel of SPAC legal experts we put together to help us break down all of the nuance included in the SEC's release. Joining us, we have Derek Dostal, who is a partner at Davis Polk and Wardwell, uh, as well as Doug Elenoff of Elenoff, Grossman and Scholl, and finally, Christian Nagler, partner at Kirkland and Ellis. Before we begin, a few housekeeping notes. We're gonna try and keep this to an hour's time, but there's a lot to uh, get through given that they're, the, the new rule clocks in at 581 pages. So please note that these are mostly initial impressions. It's it's a lot to read. I'm already anticipating we'll probably need to do a follow-up webinar with additional participants. So stay tuned and know that if we didn't answer everything today, we're working on it. Additionally, we're going to open it up to Q&A at the end where participants can send in questions directly. Um, you'll notice uh, at the bottom of your screen on Zoom, if you kind of jiggle your mouse, it should pop up. There's a control panel and you'll see an icon labeled Q&A. If you click on that to submit your questions, uh, note that you can also do so anonymously if you prefer. With that being said, I'm going to quickly run through some brief thoughts on yesterday's broadcast. Uh, mostly because I feel like it's a huge missed opportunity for the SEC to improve the going public process. So I want to share a few slides before we begin. In fact, I, you know, regarding the SEC sort of missing out on an opportunity to improve the going public process, and again, I want to restate not just for SPACs, but for all IPO routes. In fact, I think even Commissioner Hester Pierce said something similar. But uh, by that, I mean the, the IPO boom that occurred in 2020 and 2021 drove much of the thinking behind the new SPAC rule, obviously, but it never addressed the fact that SPACs as a product arose because of the dissatisfaction with the traditional IPO process. So did the direct listing. And as we've also seen, the number of companies going public has been on a continual trend downward since the mid-2000s. So limiting choice would appear to be counterintuitive. Plus, the biggest thrust of the new rule is in regards to investor protection and poor performance. So, you know, for a bit of context and as a bit of a starting point, you know, we compared all of the 2021 traditional IPOs against the 2021 SPACs that have since de-SPAC'd to compare. You know, as you can see, the 2021 traditional IPOs are trading at a median of negative 74.4% compared to their IPO price. And keep in mind that traditional IPOs tend to be much bigger later stage mature companies, which in theory should be safer for investors. And yet, this is their performance, which is not that different than spec IPOs of the same vintage. Obviously, the takeaway here is that the ZERP environment had a profound effect on the entire market at that time. And if we look at many of the uh, ZERPicorns that came public by regular way IPO in 2021, we see that, you know, quite clearly via their results. This is a list of also uh, many of the headline grabbing traditional IPOs from that period that generated a lot of investor interest. But as you can clearly see, their performance today is profoundly poor. Um, in fact, you know, I saw for the first time yesterday the term being used of unicorps uh, as opposed to unicorn. Um, but, you know, just looking at this list, um, you can see uh, Rent the Runway, Allbirds, Petco, ThreadUp, 
Honest Company down 82%. If you can't see it, Rivian down 79%. As you can see, uh, if we're measuring specs against this, this is this is probably to repeat myself, a missed opportunity. In any event, let's let's move to the topic at hand and get started. Uh, I wanted to turn it over to the panel now to get their thoughts. So maybe let's start with Doug. And Doug, maybe if you can just give sort of your high level impressions initially of the meeting, and maybe we can just sort of start there. Fair enough, Christine. Thank you for hosting this on such short notice. Um, it's great to be uh, joined by my colleagues, Christian and Derek, who have done a lot of business together and shared thoughts on what we listened to yesterday, as well as we've been able to get through of the final uh, final rules. But I think your broader context for what's going on is critically important. And certainly commissioners Ayuda uh, and Purse made those points to the majority. And so in many ways, I think the lost opportunity or the effort that's gone into focusing on SPACs that have been around and I impressed upon this, uh, impressed this upon you, because even one of the commissioners said it was like 10 or 15 years old, go back to 1993, and they have a long history, and they start with the SEC, and it's Rule 419, and so there's nothing that's been going on in SPACs for the entirety of its history, that in fact, they don't have a front row seat to. Uh, having said that, uh, we all want to improve capital markets programs, but this SEC, and when I sat with my M&A group today, I said to them, you have to understand what's really going on here. And, and I'm, is it picking on SPACs? Yes, there is that narrative, but it is when there's an imbalance or you have a majority that is of a political point of view, and I don't want to get into the politics too much about it, it you have a balance shift from capital formation to investor protection. And even though I believe that is a false narrative, and we can go through, and I believe Christian and Derek are going through some examples of where what they believe or say that they are uh, seeking to achieve certain things for investor protection, it's really nonsense. Uh, so what do I really think that they've accomplished with these final rules? I think they were troubled. This SEC was troubled by there's certain provisions that uh, SPACs have been availing themselves of that were either safe harbors or they were, uh, there were clear delineations of what they could do or they couldn't do under the PSLRA. And the SEC likes to have the discretion and they always hide it behind, I wanna review the facts and circumstances to determine whether or not uh, something ought to be uh, done. And so they didn't like the fact that the projections are, have the safe harbor protection under the PSLRA they didn't like that the broker dealers that are surrounding these deals don't seem to have any associated liability. And for some reason, and it's very odd to me, and I'll speak about it later, uh, on the 40 Act issue, which really doesn't harm investors in any way, and in many ways helped make more money for the investors when they redeemed, uh, they've been challenging whether or not a, a SPAC ought to be deemed uh, exempt under the 40 Act. And they didn't like that they didn't have the discretion to challenge when they wanted to be able to challenge those particular things. And there are many other things that we're going to talk about. But in my mind, all they've done is they've removed certainty, which is what markets love and business people like. And instead, they've uh, put in place a set of facts and rules that give them regulatory discretion. And so that's what I think has happened practically. And I don't think they're going to use it 
uh, nearly as expansively as many people who listened to them yesterday or have watched the last two years unfold, I think they want to have these tools available to them in those circumstances where they see something that they want to act upon and they didn't feel that they had the proper footing previously. Uh, which is interesting since I think a lot of these same things, I don't think they had the statutory authority to accomplish, but yet through sleight of hand have uh, gone about their business. And when you read some of the uh, backflips they're trying to do to support some of these positions, particularly uh, in uh, the, the, the approach to gatekeeper liability, it, uh, one of my partners said it, it was gibberish. Uh, so I think that's what's really going on here. I think the disclosure, which is what is the stock and trade of the SEC, and I think the press buys into this, there is nothing for the last 30 years we've done that doesn't give fair and full disclosure that the SEC is fully well aware of. Uh, are there things that you can always rewrite? Yes, but are there conflicts of interest in there? Is dilution in there? Uh, all these things, I think, have been in there. And if the SEC wanted those things to be fleshed out more, that's what the common review process is for. They did not did not need a new set of rules to accomplish any of that. Uh, and I will just finish again that uh, it's just a rebalancing and shifting towards theoretical investor protection and not capital formation. And I look forward to talking more about some of the more particular points of uh, the, the final rules. Right. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. Um, Christian, maybe let's let's start with you um, and the PSLRA and the safe harbor statement. Um, you know, does the SEC even have the statutory authority to change the PSLRA? Uh, well, there's a big question about that because they're trying to change a, a statute, a congressional statute by way of rules. So they're changing the rules that were in effect when the statute was passed. And so I think there's a big challenge there. And they it's interesting because on this one, in these 50 pages of covering the PSLRA, they mentioned their statutory authority over and over, uh, I guess, in a bit of a defensive posture, because many commentators questioned it. But let's get let's get to the heart of it, because they got the thought that they're going to take away the forward looking statement safe harbor from SPACs, got a lot of attention uh, in the press, because among the press and the SEC, it seemed to be that people were going down the SPAC route to go public because they they thought they were protected by the forward-looking statement safe harbor. And I just want to put it all into context. So first, obviously, this is getting to projections, right? This is a reaction to projections. Since the 70s, the SEC has encouraged projections. The rule that they're effectively reaffirming that was always an SK, so it applies to not just SPACs, but to all companies is it says here, the commission encourages the use of management's projections of future economic performance that have a reasonable basis. So I wanna start with, it has been the SEC's position for a long time that not only are projections at points required, but they're actually encouraged. And they run throughout a document, non-SPAC documents. If you think about MD&A and your outlook, so I just want to put that first into perspective. Second, taking away uh, the the protection provided by the statute patched by you know passed through the House and Senate. And I just want to also remind people the actual there was a committee that actually proposed changing the statute that actually didn't go through. 
So instead of enacting law through Congress, the SEC and agencies trying to do it through a different route on something that didn't get traction in the House. The It has always been the case in many of the circuit courts that there is a bespeaks caution doctrine, which is if you make statements, forward-looking statements, which the SEC has said they encourage, in good faith, on a reasonable basis, the courts have found that you can't be held liable. Separately, and the SEC actually does spend time on this, there is a Rule 175 in the Securities Act, which also gives you a safe harbor for forward-looking statements. That's not being taken away. What's being taken away is the statute. Um, I will tell you, and I'm sure I can speak for Doug and Derek, obviously we've been doing many transactions together. We have never been on a transaction that I can recall, and I think I speak for others, where we structured a transaction in a certain way to make sure we have this safe harbor. I know, Doug, I appreciate you trying not to laugh. Um, so in most of our transactions, we have a new Topco uh, issuing securities or what we call the target company, which is really the operating company, uh, issuing, filing the registration statement. Those two entities don't have the forward-looking statement safe harbor when we actually do a deal. But when we've had these discussions about structure, I can assure you whether or not you technically have this forward-looking safe, this, this forward-looking uh, safe harbor was never an issue in structuring. So it is simply not the case in my in my experience, and I'm sure in Doug's and Derek's, that people were pursuing SPAC transactions because they thought somehow they could say whatever they wanted to about their predicted future performance. So at the end of the day, I don't think that this change, assuming it's upheld in the courts, is going to change people's practices and how they conduct these SPAC transactions. So just to reiterate, you're basically saying that nothing is... As far as specs pre this new rule versus now, nothing's really changed. I, I don't think for how people conduct themselves in the spec market conducts themselves, anything's going to change because I will tell you right now, even with this safe harbor. So the safe harbor, what really gets you is maybe you can stop discovery to stop discovery in a lawsuit before the motion to dismiss. Uh, public companies that have this safe harbor are constantly subject to plaintiff suits when they don't achieve their guidance that they put out. So that that's not stopping any lawsuits, having the safe harbor. So I think removing the safe harbor is probably not gonna change it. Right, so sounds like a wash. Um, and also I wanna point out that when we do follow on offerings and the safe harbor applies, you still don't see it that often that companies put out all these projections even when they have the forward-looking statement safe harbor while they're public companies. And part of that's because uh, when they have underwriters involved, they prefer not to have the forward-looking statements despite the safe harbor. But I can assure you that you often see companies when they have guidance out there and they're about to do an offering and their guidance doesn't look so great, they actually lower guidance. So the number one question we have in our deals when we do due diligence in a normal deal is, how does the next few quarters look? That's the number one question. So uh, I don't think it's going to change practice, removing the safe harbor, assuming that's upheld in the courts. Many of our deals didn't have the safe harbor protection uh, anyway. And I do think, because it does touch on projections, 
all major transactions for a company, whether it be coming out of Chapter 11, where the court requires projections, uh, direct listing, which they often have guidance after going effective uh, so that people have the forelooking. And even in traditional IPOs, we know from the, com the commentator's letters and the SEC's admitted, the projections do go out to analysts who send them out to certain accounts. In the DSPAC transaction, everybody has the projections well in advance of the vote. Got it, got it. Well, can I just do ask a follow-up, Christy? Sure. Uh, since I, it's always good to have Christian around to ask tough questions too. I'm passionate about this one. I, I know you are, and that's what I love about it. Uh, so how does that play into giving investors and information that, so they can make an informed decision and they treat like cases alike? Well, Doug, we're, uh, well, I think the, we are treating like cases alike in this one area because we're saying that IPOs don't have the forward-looking statement safe harbor. So the SEC said either should SPACs. Obviously, throughout the rest of the 500 pages, you will see that it's not like to like because many things apply to SPACs that don't apply to other transactions. But isn't it, it also fair to say that the SEC can keep calling uh, this zebra a horse, but it's actually a zebra. This is an M&A transaction. They're very dismissive of our structures as if they have no import. It's not surely an IPO either. Yeah, it's a mixture of the two. And Doug, I think the SEC has been pretty clear. Not only do they have statements saying they encourage these projections, we've had statements from the head of the former corporate finance where he said he thinks they're required in transactions, which we have been telling people in an M&A context. Yeah, but Christian, um, yeah. point. I just want to put it out there because I know this has come up before as well. Traditional IPOs, they're allowed to use projections, right? Like there's nothing yes. prohibiting them. Uh, by the way, the SEC actually said that. They stressed to people. We, so we heard a lot that, oh, the big difference is in IPOs, you're not allowed to have projections. That's not the case at all. First of all, as the SEC pointed out, in some IPOs, like in Yieldco, in REITs, you actually do have projections in there. The SEC made clear that you can put out projections. By the way, you actually are somewhat putting out projections in a regular IPO, because in your MD&A, when you talk about liquidity, really the only way to do that is talk about future performance how much cash is coming in. But that's right, Christy, uh, there, you are not prohibited from putting in the IPO, but the practice generally has been the underwriters, right? Because there are plaintiffs, uh, law firms out there looking for suits. We've learned this in the SPAC context, uh, that the underwriters are preferring it not being the public document, but then the um, numbers are eventually make their way as the SEC has acknowledged through the research analysts to certain accounts buying in the IPO. Right, like right. Was... There are there are projections. They're just um, disseminated, on, candidly, a little bit unfairly, right? Just through the research analysts to select. Uh, yes, Christine, the market doesn't have them. Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, I was going to hit that same point. I mean, they don't need to go in the IPO, traditional IPO prospectus because they're conveyed to research analysts. Research analyst gets a call from Fidelity, Wellington, big institutional investor, and says, what's the view on the next two years or the next three years? Here's how we're thinking about the model. And they just don't need to put them in the four corners of the traditional IPO prospectus. But th those projections become the basis for the research analyst model going forward and the ongoing guidance. So I'd argue it's sort of like for like. And that's the structural distinction that that dictates a different result with the projections in the four corners of the 
of the pr pr prospectus or registration statement in a DSPAC process. And thus creates an asymmetry of information dissemination, which is the problem. Exactly. If my grandmother's what, investing, she doesn't get what Fidelity gets. Yeah. I think, Doug, to your missed opportunity point, one thing we're missing here a little bit is the, you know, the previous chairman of the SEC in response to SPACs at one time said, maybe we need to think about this and why people are going the SPAC route and we need to think. My preference would have been, because again, if you do things in bad faith and you know the projections are wrong, the forward-looking statement, safe harbor, won't be that helpful. I would have preferred that we have the forward-looking statement, safe harbor, also apply to IPOs and specs. Uh, all in favor? <laughs> Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk to Derek now. Um, Derek, I want you to maybe sort of discuss underwriter liability because that was uh, a, a big, big point of um, contention. And also, if you could maybe also touch on the co-registrant liability as well. Yeah, let me take those in turn, Christy. And, and, and thanks again for for putting this together. I'm glad to be here. Um, so so just on on the underwriter liability point in the rule proposal, the SEC put forth a rule, it was called 140A, that um, uh, took a, a very creative, let's say, view of the statutory definition of an underwriter. And it basically said that if you were a bank that um, conducted uh, a, a SPAC IPO in your capacity as underwriter, and then facilitated the back-end DSPAC transaction, received any direct or indirect compensation, you were in a continuous distribution of securities and you sort of participated with a view towards distribution of that back-end DSPAC transaction, which may have occurred 12, 18, 24 months later. Um, and they, the SEC said in their rule proposal when it first came out that that was a clarification of the 2A11 definition of underwriter, which we all um, disagreed with based on the case law. The SEC backed off that point um, in sort of a surprise move, at least a surprise to me uh, move. Um, and basically said, we're not going to go down that path for whatever reason. I think they didn't have the footing. Um, and I think they also saw the pushback from the comment letters that are cited in the in the uh, final rule proposal, where everybody sa said that's not really how the, the securities bar thinks about a traditional underwriter. And that doesn't sync up to the reality of who's an underwriter and take that to its extreme. What about public M&A? Are those financial advisors that are advising in the public M&A situation? statutory underwriters when there's an offering of securities or an exchange of securities or, or, or securities as consideration. So the SEC backed off that. Um, that rule was not adopted. Um, and um, instead, the SEC included guidance, which reads like a law school hornbook of what's, what's an underwriter, what's a distribution, really basic stuff if you were a first-year law student or a second-year law student reading about securities. Um, and that discussion takes up four or five pages in the 600-page release. So I don't think it's really going to change the market, though, um, Christy, to, to your sort of earlier point. Um, I think it's status quo. I think banks are, are very careful about which deals they participate in on the back end. I think probably 10B5 letters and comfort letters um, being delivered in connection with these back transactions are probably here to stay. Um, but it was interesting to see that the SEC sort of read the letters, processed it, you know, looked in the mirror and thought long and hard about whether they could justify it um, in court. And they decided to just put out guidance and not the rule. Right, right. Well, uh, the other big thing that they sort of brought up was um, now including the target company as a co-registrant. Um, I, I know, well, I could be wrong here, but you know, you'll correct me. I, I thought that target companies were already sort of doing that. Um, it depends on the structure and how it's structured, but there were situations where you just had a proxy statement and not a registration statement. And um, usually the action, at least in the first instance, is on the SPAC side. 
They're the ones calling the special shareholder meeting to approve the transaction, et cetera. Um, and now the SEC has a rule that um, uh, says that the, uh, it, you know, the, the DSPAC transactions, a distribution of the you know, going forward uh, DSPAC companies securities and that target operating company in the back end process has to be a co-registrant on the F4 or S4 registration statement. My, my own view, it's more status quo. Um, I think as a practical matter, maybe there's more of a hook for liability for the, the target company. I think as a practical matter, they were holding the bag at the end of the day. So when the plaintiff's lawyers come out and the stock price drops, who are they going to sue? They're not going to shoot, sue the SPAC. It just merged into a target company. They're going to sue the target company. Um, so that's a, a change that I think probably already reflects the economic reality and the sort of market practice of what we've been thinking from a liability profile perspective, you know, for, for, for years now. Right. So at worst, maybe some additional cost, but um, probably not too significant. Um, yeah. Chrissy, I'll just add, and I don't know if I got the page numbers wrong before, but they spent about 10 pages on this out of 500. And right. they basically said, we're not adopting the rule. But this was such a big deal in the press that the SEC is coming after the banks or underwriters. It only 10 pages got attributed to it. And Derek, you mentioned that normal way public M&A. People pointed out that with your broad definition, you're changing the practice the way it's been for decades. And they actually come out and say, oh, by the way, the guidance of definition of distributing out securities uh, is not intended to influence the current practice in traditional M&A. Uh, so I think they realized they made a statement. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. And now they're trying to scale back that maybe their view of the world is not as broad as they proposed. Um, but, they, but they also didn't eliminate the concern either. Well, Doug, no. they, they, it's hard to because they took a position that distribution that they'd have to say, by the way, everything we said about the case law. Well, I understand that, although they also dismissed the case law and said they're going to do what they want to do, uh, truthfully. But my point, it goes back to my opening narrative, rather than have clarity, they wanted uncertainty and they want to make sure that they have the discretion to second guess people when they don't like the outcomes of things. I was going to say, Doug, to your, to your original point, I think it also gives them a hook. You know, if there's bad actors out there, they can throw the whole book at them, including underwriter liability. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where this turns out with some of the private litigation that's still ongoing, where some very creative and I'm sure smart uh, plaintiff's lawyers have said, you're underwriters, you financial advisor on a DSPAC process are an underwriter. It'll be interesting to see where the courts come out on this, because I think that's where the, the issue sits now at the moment. Right. But I think, and I, I may not have this right, I think the Delaware case that actually cited 140 as the proposed rule has now had its legs cut out from it because the SEC backed off. So I think under Delaware, that they're going to lose that that particular in the Delaware court. Yeah, I think so too. I think so yeah, too. There I, could not be the a litigator, but... decision that eradicates even this ten pages of commentary. I think they've got to have another hook. Um, I agree. It gives it gives the the uh, the banks who are being sued there a lot of leverage to 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 settle this for nothing. Well, quick, quick question then. Um, does this affect SPACs that were domiciled in Caymans or offshore? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is, I mean, there, there, there's broader sort of trends towards moving to Cayman for other reasons, but this sort of liability point, um, I think as a practical matter, you can sue a, a Cayman DSPAC company or a Cayman entity in, in New York court or anywhere in the United States. I don't think it really changes the, the, the profile um, uh, from a Delaware or Cayman perspective, but there is a broader trend towards Cayman SPACs for, for other reasons. Right, right. Which 
we can get into if we have time. But <laughs> before different discussion. I, yeah. Uh, before uh, we move on to Doug and Investment Act of 1940, because I want to ask you about that. Um, Derek, if, if, you, if, if you can uh, maybe touch a little bit on um, what was included regarding the board. For, uh, yeah. Next. Yeah, Christy, this is an interesting point. Um, in the proposal, there was a concept of including a statement um, that said, you know, we think the transaction, including any related financing, is fair from a you know financial perspective. Or there was some sort of magic language in there that didn't really sync up to the sort of fairness opinion construct, particularly by referencing financing. So basically what the SEC said is, look, we take back what we said. They were sort of going down a path of like a take private transaction, like what we would call a 13E3 transaction. Um, and they basically said, we take that back. We, we hear you guys. We get it that the providers of fairness opinions don't, don't um, um, sort of cover it in this, in this formulation. We weren't trying to have a backdoor requirement for a fairness opinion, which is how people sort of reacted when that initial proposal came out. And instead, um, the SEC basically said, we're going to look to corporate law. We're going to look to Delaware. We're going to look to Cayman as to what they require. Both of them require a statement that the boards approve the transaction. I think it's in the best interest um, of, their, of their shareholders from a fiduciary perspective. So I think we're back at the status quo. I think we're back at the status quo when it comes to, to that. And it was a sort of a, a welcome change and a sort of surprise that the SEC was going to backpedal on that. Right. Although one, one finer point on that where I think we're not treating like things alike. I think the guidance also says that if you're a director who dissents, which really doesn't happen in SPACs, you have to be identified in the proxy. And you don't have that on any other decision making that goes on in public company life. It's bizarre. It's odd. It's not, it's not like to like, no. No. Just one more thing on this signing the registration statement. I just uh, like I'm passionate about the PSLRA. I don't I've never worked in a transaction where the when the target filed the registration statement instead of the SPAC, that there was ever a discussion of people not wanting it to do that, do it that way because people had to sign a registration statement. So in practice, it is just not the case that people were doing a SPAC transaction because they thought they could avoid liability. Right. Well, right. And, That's a good and, point. But, but Christian, I'm sure you've spoken to plaintiffs lawyers who said because there's no signature, they wouldn't bring a claim. <laughs> That's a joke. Everyone said Jug's telling a joke. I was going to say, be careful. <laughs> they bring the claim regardless. Well, okay, Doug, let's let's move on to you because I, I do want to get into the Investment Company Act of 1940. Um, it appears the SEC backed up this issue as well, but maybe you can kind of explain why. So I think we have to go through the history of this to begin with. Uh, we are still of the view that SPACs are exempt from the 40 Act. And I think many other people, including a long, uh, an illustrious list of firms, that uh, participate in a letter uh, writing campaign two or three years ago uh, in response to a Delaware action uh, claiming that SPAC should be uh, subject to and should register under the 40 Act uh, feel the same way. But this is not a new issue that came up. Uh, it, it's come up resurfaced in the SPAC boom. But this is an issue that if you go back to 2007 or so, the SEC raised with us, sent comments questioning what we were doing with the funds in the trust account and did it make us uh, necessitate a registration under the 40 Act. Uh, we working, and I believe David Miller may even be on this call, who's the OG of the SPAC industry, hired a big law firm and with their, uh, their 40 Act counsel, and we spoke to the head of IM at, the, uh, at that time 
And they got comfortable as long as we put the money in U.S. Treasuries or a money market fund backed by U.S. Treasuries only, that we wouldn't have any uh, such issue. And for the next 14 years, that's the way every SPAC was done. It just wasn't an issue. And in terms of investor protection, uh, the money's always been returned with the interest that it was supposed to get. And so it was only as a result of the SPAC boom when I believe the SEC was actively seeking issues in order to slow the market that this issue resurfaced. And it happened to have come up approximately to when the warrant liability issue came up, which was a fiction uh, that caused a huge amount of disruption in the SPAC market at the same time. And uh, the SEC, um, I'll choose my words carefully, uh, was supportive of the actions that I believe were brought in Delaware, uh, challenging whether or not SPAC should be registered. And we all got together and we still came to the conclusion that they should not be. So everything about what I'm about to say after this doesn't change our basic point of view that uh, we think SPACs are exempt. Commissioner Peirce made the specific point that over a thousand SPAC issuances have occurred and no 40 Act enforcement actions have been brought. So now we're raising an issue and that came up in the proposed rules and is now, uh, I think, even lacks clarity in the final rules. They didn't give us a safe harbor, a pathway forward where they could assure us that we wouldn't have a problem. They're clearing registration statements that they know go beyond certain periods of time. And then after that, they're saying, well, after a year or some time period, it could be 18 months, it depends if you have a, a signed a business combination agreement, we will then decide whether or not you've triggered the 40 Act and need to register. And so I think they've created more confusion. They say, and uh, the uh, counsel for IM on the call yesterday specifically said they want to reserve for themselves the right to review the facts and circumstances I think there's something like a five-part test to determine whether or not they think individual SPACs will be forced into uh, some kind of compliance. So some people are saying, you know, 12 months or 18 months. The reality is the rules have been in place for the 40 Act since 1940, and there have been no enforcement and there's no forcing of SPACs to register because when you go through the practical realities to whether or not they could actually accomplish that, they cannot, given their structure. So it, it seems to me a bit of a false narrative that they are trying to say that they raised this issue, they're giving themselves political cover to say they're continuing uh, the issue in the final rules. But at the end of the day, they're not taking any action. There's no suggestion they're taking any action. And by the way, that's true, I think, on the projections. I think it's true on the gatekeeper liability, which is why I think we all believe the way we've been operating in SPACs with SPACs and DSPACs uh, are consistent with what they want us to be doing. And so I don't think this is a huge disruption on any level, but if you are concerned, because they're saying that every SPAC has to confer with its counsel, that you somehow may inadvertently trigger the 40 Act rules, you can take your cash from US treasuries, which I think uniformly uh, folks uh, have their money in, and put it into demand deposit accounts, which, which are interest bearing, and we have gotten comfort from the SEC that that will keep you out of uh, any concern about the 40 Act. So unfortunately, I, I can't tell you that I think there's any great clarity that comes of this. Um, and speaking to Christian and Derek, they may have a different point of view, 
Uh, but I think it was just creating an issue for the sake of creating an issue at one point in time, and they couldn't completely back away from it. And so we live with that today, even though I think it's with, it, it's toothless. Right. I mean, I probably came up because of Ackman, right? And then they were kind of stuck with it. Um... So Ackman's issue is different or was different, but you're right. That heightened the concern that all of a sudden we were going from a public shell that was acquiring a company to buying a passive minority interest in another entity, you know, uh, Universal Music. And the SEC didn't like that. And that is what reopened the conversation. And if you knew at the time of your business combination that this is what you're going to do, we are going to tack back to the IPO and said, you were always in an inadvertent 40 act company, which is absurd because that's not what Ackman ever intended to do. Right. Well, you know, there was a, a time component to this, right? And I saw 12 months mentioned multiple times. Um, maybe, you know, one of you can jump on that and just sort of explain it because I'm sure other people in the audience are confused as well. Yeah, there was a reference to 12 months on the on the open meeting yesterday. And I think we were all curious to see what the release said. Um, but but all it was referring to was this concept of being a transient investment company. Um, the idea being that, um, you know, if you have some issue, you can sort of transition in and out of, you know, investment company world and, and rectify the problem. It really wasn't dictating any sort of uh, rule of thumb or, or soft guidance. I think our rule of thumb is you can go well, well past 12 months and not worry about it. You look at the other factors, the sort of time, time duration element is, is not terribly relevant here. I think the, the practical time element is really the 36 months under the listing rules under NASDAQ and NYSE, which are approved by the SEC, incidentally. Um, so I, I wouldn't put much weight on the 12 months. It was it was thrown around and it probably got too much prominence on that uh, on that meeting yesterday. Okay. Yeah, that's a transitory rule. If you somehow become a 40 act company, you have like 12 months to fix it. SPACs were never 40 act companies to begin with. They didn't somehow right. become. They started this way. They've been around for a long time. Over 60 law firms, uh, came out with a statement pretty quickly in great collaboration uh, stating, hey, uh, under the this is just not the case. The ABA has come out and the SEC is interesting because the SEC proposed it as a safe harbor. It seems like in the press it was deemed as restrictions. And now that these so-called restrictions are actually not being enacted, I look forward to all the press articles saying that the SEC is not adopting the restrictions. I tell you what, let's, I, I do want to leave some time for some Q&A, but before we do that, um, I, I'd like to maybe ask each of you, what is like the one main takeaway you want listeners to uh, come away from this, this meeting with? And maybe I'll start with you, Doug. I, I think there's a big disconnect between the noise that was made two years ago when these rules were suggested and uh, the actual uh, conventions by which we practice today, which I think are largely consistent with the spirit that the SEC had hoped that we would do, and we have done in large measure, I can't speak for all deals. The reality is I don't think what the 581 pages contains will change, for the most part, what we're doing. And so the conservative commissioners who were concerned there will be no SPAC market, uh, I don't except actually uh, I think market participants know how to bob and weave with the flow of regulations and I think we're actually if we had 31 SPACs in 2023 uh, we will have something north of double that this year 
And I think we will continue to have business combinations. I think we had nearly 100 business combinations last year, the year before that. And obviously that was a spinoff or the uh, fall, off, fall off from the crop of 2021. I think we go back to a normalized pre-2020 market environment. Sure. Um, Christian, what about you? How about uh, last thoughts? Look, I, I agree with Doug. I think of a lot of the things being put forward we've been doing in practice anyway. I'll focus mostly on like projection disclosure they want about all the assumptions being used. I, I think it's great disclosure. I, I'm all for it. Interesting that one of the projection rules are only applying to SPACs and other deals, not other deals. So I'm a little lost in the like for like. But uh, again, I think we're doing a lot of these things already that the SEC is looking at. Um, clearly to your performance, uh, Christy, that you showed, I assume, you know, when you show the performance, unfortunately, 20, th that vintage of IPOs and SPACs were tough. They both lost money on average. Um, so I'm curious in what the, you mentioned this in an article, what the projections were like in the IPOs given to the analysts, if those projections were met, which were under a tremendous amount of scrutiny from those analysts. Uh, again, but there are transactions where, guess what? People actually beat their projections. And you don't, you won't hear about this in the press too much. But I wish coming out of this, so people spend more time looking at the structure and trying to understand why, and there's a lot of large companies that did this, followed that route instead of a direct listing or an IPO. And I hope in the future, we return to the number of public companies we had 20 years ago. Right. And re regarding the projections and traditional IPOs, there was actually a pretty interesting study, and I, I can't remember who did it or when, because it's not the tip of my fingers right now, but public companies, once they're public, they game the system. It, it's w widely known, and they've done studies on this. And so public companies tend to undershoot their numbers on purpose, so they beat them. So it wouldn't be a fair comparison, but that's once they're public, right? We don't know yeah. what sort of projections they're giving in a traditional IPO process, unfortunately. Christy, that's just the lawyer saying, be conservative. Yeah, exactly. No, we all we always say that, right? Be conservative. You want to you want to beat them. Christy, thank you for your passion uh, on SPAC Insider of taking the time to really make sure we all understand and study the various different ways of going public. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, well, anyway, I, I do want to move to Derek with uh, I want to get your last uh, takeaway as well. Yeah, mine's very short. To me, I've gotten 25 phone calls in the last 24 hours. Um, bottom line, this. To me, it's status quo. I think for the reputable players in the, in the industry, we've done 95% of this stuff on deals to date. We care about disclosure. We care about conflicts. We care about dilution. Um, I think the reputable players are going to have a big snooze when they get through all 580 pages of the of the, re the release. And on the margins, there'll be some tweaks here and some disclosure requirements. But to me, it's status quo. Right, right. Oh, you know, before I forget, too, there was a mention of a timeline, right? 125 days, I think, for... The federal register um i'm gonna That's get it right wrong. yeah yeah so, you have it handy yeah so it's basically four months so it'll get published in, in the next week or two but unclear exactly when but um, we'll have sort of have final rules um, sometime in june or july and then there's some data tagging some very technical data tagging requirements that uh that spring into effect a year after that right right i think it's even longer i i think it was 490 days or something like that so maybe uh yeah yeah, it's that's from the from the publishing the Federal Register, so you get the benefit of that 125 day period. So oh, I see. So it's, okay. so it's one year from the effectiveness of uh, of these rules. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's move on to the Q and A portion. Um, let me just kind of go through this in 
see. Someone asked, when did these rules go effective? Is there a chance for retroactive enforcement? I think that's the larger issue. Is there a chance for retroactive enforcement? What, so these are disclosure rules and you're required to follow the disclosure rules in the in place at the time you file the registration statement. So there's no real way of like going back. You can't go back now and say, oh, by the way, you're in violation because this rule got enacted and you finished your DSPAC uh, two years ago. Right. So so existing specs are, for the most part, kind of grandfathered in, I guess. Yes. And again, a lot of the stuff's been followed already. Oh, and we're mindful. We've always been mindful of the proposed rules when we've been doing our transaction the last year and a half. Go ahead, Doug. No, I was just going to say, but on the DSPAC, on the proxies and the S4s, it, 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 you could have to uh, comply. Going forward. Also, a big yeah. question on retroactive is, and it was mentioned in this 500 pages, is the underwriter liability. Again, just to be clear, sure, sure. the SEC can't enact a statute to all of a sudden make someone an underwriter. They had a proposed rule, which they didn't adopt. So their view of the case law, again, it didn't get many pages in the release. That's always been out there. So this the plaintiffs has always been able to bring uh, suits if they wanted to. Well, uh, another question here um, states, uh, notwithstanding the non-adoption of 140A, does the panel have any predictions as to how plaintiffs could use the clarification going forward? They've got a big hill to overcome. Um, you know, they've got to you know overcome the fact that the, the rule was never adopted and uh, and the case law. So I think a lot of these cases don't go the whole way to sort of final you know judicial resolution by a judge or a jury um, and their settlement value. So I, I think they're going to pivot back to more traditional means of you know extracting value um, and and not citing that because I, I just think it's a losing argument. I would just add that you know I, I think that there's been a lot of concern about the cases in Delaware generally. And my understanding from the DNO carriers uh, overall is that they now look at this process completely in a similar actuarial way as IPOs. And so the premiums are coming down to adjust to the reduced risk that they perceive, uh, notwithstanding that there have been some high profile cases in Delaware generally. Sounds good. Um, all right. So next question um, we got here. Um, do you think underwriters around the DSPAC will come back to the table based on this, or will the lack of clarity keep them on the sidelines? That's yeah, it's another good one, Christy. I, I don't think they're going to come back and and not look for the protections that they've been getting over the last two years. To be honest, I think um, you know the, the 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 sort of scrutiny in the in the litigation profile is out there, and I think they're going to go through their committee process in a very uh, rigorous kind of way. And as I said earlier, I think that means 10B5 letters and comfort letters are here to stay. It'll be interesting to see how market practice changes, if at all. But to me, it's status quo. I'll see if Doug and Christian disagree. I think we're already seeing a, before the final rules were even announced last week for the Sunshine Notice, I think the market was starting to come back, both primarily, I'd say the small broker dealers, as well as the midsize. Uh, I think some of the large ones have done SPACs over the last year, and so they've been waiting for this. And I think, as Derek said, we have commercial solutions. These are investment professionals who know how to transact an IPO, and doing a DSPAC transaction is something that they're all perfectly capable of doing and hedging out the risk as appropriate. So I think you'll see over time the larger firms get comfortable as long as the narrative coming out of Washington doesn't continue to stigmatize the program. All right, got another good question for you, but it's a bit long, so bear with me. 
are there practical implications of more robust disclosure that might alter the manner in which transactions are conducted? For example, in many recent deals, given high redemption levels, the ultimate funds flow and use of proceeds is often determined at the 11th hour. Will that be permissible if certain second order effects of the use of proceeds needs to be disclosed? Example, net tangible book value per share. I'll, I'll take a flyer on this, guys, unless you <laughs> you want to dive in. <laughs> might, 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 be too, might be too niche. <laughs> no, I, I think the broader point is, yes, a lot of things happen in the last 48 hours of a GSPEC transaction that are not necessarily fully anticipatable. Uh, one of the concerns that is routinely voiced by academics is a concern about dilution. And, you, and this uh, panel has discussed this privately. Uh, and dilution as a concept in an IPO transaction is disclosed. We think most investors find it useless, but it is required. And so there's a thought process that you have to do a more detailed analysis based upon the amount of cash that ultimately is still in the uh, coming out of the trust to fund the transaction and have you properly disclose it uh, in some ways that the investors can understand the dilutive effect of both the redeeming shareholders and how much cash is left at the end of the process. And I think we've gone a long way toward trying to accomplish that. Uh, and I don't think it is all, other than the headline number, how much cash is coming in, I don't think the calculation on the net tangible value which ties to dilution is is all that relevant to it uh, for an investor to make an informed decision. So uh, maybe we tighten it up a bit, but because the rule, the new rules may require it, or the, the common and review process with the staff may require it. But uh, I'm, uh, I don't think that it's something that troubles me. Got it. Got it. All right. Okay. Well, here's a good one. Um, what is the extra what is the extra cost and time added from comfort letters and 10b5 opinions for underwriter due diligence relatedly can sponsors gain additional protections by having a 10b5 opinion and comfort letters and not just the banks if the lawyers and auditors are told up front in the process that they have to do negative assurance letters they can requested negative assurance letters and comfort letters um, then that is not necessarily cost prohibitive because we're already working on all the disclosure. So maybe we have more phone calls, maybe we do a little bit more diligence. But if we're told up front to do all that, that is not changing uh, anything. Those letters are delivered to the financial parties involved. Again, I'm not going to call them underwriters because I don't think they are. But they're delivered to those underwriter, those banks that they do so in case they're ever deemed an underwriter, just like an IPO, it's who they're delivered to. They are not addressed to other parties, but certainly people can take comfort in the fact that there were negative assurance letters delivered in the transaction. I don't know. Sorry, Derek, if I cut you off. No, I was going to say the same thing. I think knowing about it up front, um, it sort of, it takes a lot of pressure off the cost um, and on the margins, it, it, it shouldn't be prohibitive. Um, and I think it's just good for the deal. I mean, it's only delivered and addressed um, to the financial advisors or the banks who are involved in the deal. But I just think it's good for the deal. If I'm sitting on a SPAC board and I know comfort letters are being delivered and 10B5 letters are being delivered and the diligence associated with those, those two work streams is being done, I just feel a lot better about the deal. So by the way, uh, can, can you can one of you talk about cost, right? Because that did come up. Is it a significant cost to get those? I think I thought we covered that. If we're told up front to do all the work, I don't think it's that significant. Okay. 
I thought Christian was going to talk about his, his billing rate. Uh, The one thing I would just add there, what we've seen over the last couple of years, Christy, is unfortunately uh, there are professional service advisors, unlike Christian or Derek, who understand what the SEC has been trying to get at in terms of squeezing this into an IPO-like process and the seriousness of a private company transitioning to the public world and wanting to make sure the public is getting the benefit of their investment. There are firms that don't really understand this responsibility and are trying to wiggle out, even though they've been told upfront about giving the negative assurances or the uh, the like. And it creates a real tension at the end of the process. So if you have, if you are a professional service provider on this call, you should presume going forward that you will be requested, uh, required to provide these assurances. Well said. Um, okay, next question. What, if any, are the practical changes for target companies if they are now being if they are now being considered co-registrant? Is there any more prep audit work required ahead of DSPAC, or is it more just increased liability as a co-registrant to pre-DSPAC filings? I think in theory it's it's increased liability, but I think practically it's not. I, I think um, I think that the, the target operating company is going to need to dot I's and cross T's, be comfortable with the disclosure. 90% of the disclosure is about them. You know, the SPAC disclosure is really about sort of calling it so administrative in nature and calling a meeting and, and things like that. So I, I think in practice, signing that registration statement doesn't move the needle at all, as we talked about earlier. And um, and they're, they're going to want to have the appropriate advisors, banks, lawyers, accountants, help them with the process in a way that uh, that, that, that protects them from liability going forward. Um, and, and signing the registration statement is just a formality, frankly. At least that's my view. Yeah, Chris, I want to add that just so everyone understands, I mean, I know that the panelists do, the company, what we call the target company, which is never a great name because it's really, they're, they're the ones running the show most of the time because they're the ones going public. They always had to have a PCLB audit to file. They're going to have to do, it's the same audit, even if they're signing or not signing, their financials had to be up to the PCLB standard and have been in all these transactions. There was sort of a follow-up to that question that I want to get to, and it, it should be pretty easy for you to answer. But it says, the are the new rules different for different deal structures, i.e. traditional D-spec or double dummy structure, et cetera? Are they the same? Same. Okay. The yeah, SEC really. basically took the position, I thought, Derek, unless you're going to tell me I'm wrong, that they didn't care. Any business combination transaction, they're going to treat the same. Yeah, that's 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 right. No, I think that's right. I mean, there's still some unresolved questions out there. Like, I don't want to get too technical, but the one rule 144I does that apply to the target structure on on top? Um, uh, so that, I think there still are some structural differences that will rear their heads after the transaction. But I think fundamentally, the DSPAC, it's it's the same. For the liability, I thought was the, what the question was getting at. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to remind everybody. You know, it is 581 pages, and we only got it yesterday, <laughs> so uh, we're still going through it. Um, all right, so I think we have time for one more question. Um, and this one says, uh, going forward, do any panelists think SPACs will start shifting to demand deposits uh, after 12 months instead of after 18 or 24? Uh, that's what I had touched upon earlier. I think there will be folks who, do, who if at the 12-month marker they haven't signed a BCA, I think they, uh, if, if you're conservative and you don't buy my original thesis, which is we are exempt, uh, then that's a conservative position to take. 
Okay. Which is to say, put your money into the demand deposit account. And we believe based upon the advice that we've been given by the SEC, that that would keep you in the clear. One final question I do want to ask, because it just came in. It says, the Paul Hastings website says that rules will be effective 125 days after the publication in the Federal Register. Will there be a race to get deals done? Does filing a preliminary prospectus with projections grandfather you in? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's like if you file it before that 125 days, like, are you not held to a different standard? So let me just address the projections thing. The SEC has said that they encourage the use of projections. So I don't think like the, I don't think anything's going to like people aren't going to time their filing on the rules because they have projections. I don't know, Doug and Derek, I'm sure you agree. I do agree. Yeah. And when we've been over the last since the proposed rules came out, I think a lot of the DSPAC transactions have already reflected much of this disclosure. Got it. Right. I just wanted to clear that up because, you know, when you when, when the SEC starts putting, you know, a timeline in there, people get confused and they think there's going to be a band rush to the door. But I think the real takeaway here is that, as Derek said, it's status quo for the most part. Right. Um, so nothing's really going to change. I think generally it's our experience that people have always tried to get their registration statement on file as soon as possible, because the SPAC only has a certain amount of lifetime. We've seen sponsors having to put more money in to extend uh, their SPACs. We've seen a lot of SPACs liquidate where sponsors have lost a lot of money. So just one thing to remember, the idea that the sponsors are making all this money on every transactions is actually not the case. When there's a liquidation, the sponsor will have often lost all of its upfront costs. Right, which can be significant, right? Okay, well, listen, we uh, managed to get that in in, in exactly 60 minutes. So um, I want to thank all three of you for participating. I think this has been really informative, and um, I hope everybody enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. So, Thank you, Christy. Thanks for organizing it. Good to be on the panel, guys. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.